and welcome back to another episode of Drone World, the podcast by Copters. I'm your host, George Byrne, and we're here to discuss the evolution of drone laws and the drone perception here in the UK. So let's jump straight in. Just to do a bit of a kickoff, my name is George Byrne. I'm a UAV strategist at Copters, commercial drone experts. We work with a number of companies and manufacturers from around the world to bring a full solution in terms of drone equipment, software, training all together to produce safe, effective, quick, and the best drone technology that you can get. And with that comes a lot of really cool and exciting projects and companies to which I would love to introduce you to the likes of Darren from the University of Lancaster, who will be going on to talk a little bit more in a couple of seconds. We've got Amanda from Sellafield in the nuclear industry. We've got Nick at Northland Search and Rescue. So we'll have a really good perspective from that side of the drone use world. We've also got Emily and Gareth, who are currently about to board a ferry from the Isle of Mull. So fingers crossed, connections stay. And they're from Drone Prep. And they've got some really cool and exciting projects about how they're using drones and look towards the future use of drones. So without any further ado, I'll introduce you now to Darren. Darren is from the University of Lancaster. So Darren, over to you. Thanks, George. Evening, everyone. So I'm Darren Ansell. I'm Professor of Aerospace Engineering at, it's actually University of Central Lancashire in Preston. We've been working in drone technology now for about 10 years. And before that, I worked in the industry. So I've probably been doing drone technology now for nearly 20 years. I'm surprised how quickly it's gone and how far it's changed over the last 20 years or so. The reason we've teamed up with Copters today and all of our great speakers is really to just start this debate about drones. We're working on a European project called Aerial Uptake. And it's a project that involves five other European regions. We were in Europe when we started the project. Obviously, we're not now, but we're still participating in the project. And it's really to learn from other cities on how they are promoting drone use and supporting the uptake of drones. That's helping businesses. It's looking at all the great use cases and sharing good examples. It's all about trying to influence local authorities and local governments to invest more money in regions to support drone technology growth. And part of that is a big consultation. It's about talking to industry. It's about talking to academia. But it's about talking to the public and engaging as well. Just want to tell you about one other little project we're doing at the university. We've just launched a two-year project to actually support drone businesses in the sort of northwest and Lancashire region. We can provide assistance for companies that are developing drone technology, but also for end users who are perhaps thinking of using drones that are not using them at the moment. We've got a technical team that can provide free support to help you with that. So if anyone's interested in that, just please let me know. But I'm going to sit back and enjoy the show now, and I'll hand you back to George. Thank you very much, George. Thank you for that, Darren. Yeah, really excited to see the rest of the show. On to our next panellist and speaker, we've got Amanda from Sellafield. Amanda, if you just want to introduce yourself, we'll go from there. Um, nice to meet you all. I'm Amanda Smith and I am the UAV lead on the Sellafield site in West Cumbria. I head a really small team of about four drone pilots who are also doubled up as equipment engineers. So they basically need to know the ins and outs of all the equipment that they are using. A day-to-day task for us, we do numerous inspections across the site. If anybody doesn't know what Sellafield does, it's a nuclear site on the West Coast and it's not a small site. It's probably got a population of about 10,000 people on site pre-COVID at any one time. 
it's like its own little town. It's got its own buildings. It's got stacked chimneys. It's got rivers running through it. It's got security gates and fences for man and dog. It's got a lot of different and unique challenges. One of our biggest uses of drones on the site is for asset inspection. So that is making sure that we can inspect all the buildings, all the structures, anywhere that you can't physically see from the ground to make sure that the site is going to remain safe and secure for X amount of years to come. It's a varied role. One day we can be doing the assets on site. However, we do do a lot of work in the local community as well. So we do a lot of socioeconomic support. And that's because there isn't many big businesses in the area. So we make sure that we try and support the socioeconomic projects as much as we can. Sure that we are not just one of the biggest employees in the area, but that we do actually care about the area that we're in. Part of that is linking into things like schools and colleges as well to promote drones from an early age and to gauge the interest to say, look, this is a career. It's not just a toy that you can get at Christmas and carry on playing with. Our site strategic objectives is, in a nutshell, safer and faster and cheaper. So obviously, the safety thing is massive for the nuclear industry. If we can mitigate people going to work at height, so mitigate that scaffold with the rope access, etc. It's a big plus for us. Faster, it's a downtime from plants, so you don't need to build a load of scaffold to get into both internal and external areas. So you can get in, you can get your job done quite quick, get back out. It means that you haven't got the downtime of getting the scaffold built whilst the inspection's then taking place and then the time for your scaffold to be removed. So that links into your cheaper side of things as well. It all adds up to the cost. And because we're funded by the taxpayer, what we need to do is we need to prove that we are massively cost effective and we're not wasting all you guys' monies. Fantastic. Amanda, thanks very much for the introduction. What's going to be really exciting about when we finally get to the panellists' questions is we've got people from all over the industry using it for different processes, which leads me on to Nick from Search and Rescue. Nick, just to please introduce yourself and explain what you do day to day. Yeah, so I, I'm Nick. I'm a team leader for Northampton for Search and Rescue. I'm also one of the main drone pilots for Northampton Search and Rescue. I also do a lot of drone work with my agricultural background, with my farming hat on as well. So I have two sort of good views of drone and what it's like using drones out in the public domain. As Search and Rescue, Northampton is part of Lowland Rescue. And just for those that aren't aware or haven't heard of Lowland Rescue before, You've probably heard of the RNLI, the Coast Guard, Cave Rescue. You then get Lowland Rescue before you then get to the mountains where mountain rescue take over. So hill to high waters where we fit in. Just over 3,000 volunteers. We have about 46 drones in the organisation. We have things like bike teams, water teams, boat teams. We have numerous different types of vehicles, ATVs, that side of things as well. One of the key things is that we can only be pulled out by the police. And the other key thing is we are completely self-funded. So purely from donations, we don't get any government money or funding. So everything we do is all by volunteers. So as Northamptonshire, we're about 32 members. We have 10 probationary members at the moment. We'll hopefully be getting signed off quite soon. And a drone to us is a fantastic asset because it's something we can have in our backpack, have in the back of one of our vehicles. And if we get to somewhere that's a large open area of land, particularly arable fields, something like that, where the crop's about two, three foot tall, we can stick the drone up, assess the whole area, we can search whatever we need to search, and we can move on to the next place. We do also use it as a standalone asset, so we may be deployed just as a drone team. And um, so police and fire may call us in, depending on what it is. A prime example, last night we were searching for a high-risk missing person. A report came in of something slightly odd. Just down the road, there wasn't a police drone available. The helicopter was about to be pulled out because we were with police officers at the time and we had direct comms to the police. We're half a mile away, what do we need to do? We could then go and help them with that. So from our point of view, 
and helicopters, two and a half thousand pounds to call out, we're free. So in terms of taxpayers' money, we're a great asset for them as well. And for us, our main priority is to find high-risk risky people. And the quicker we can do it, the easier we can do it, the safer we can do it, the better. It's all about time for us. So something small, lightweight, you can carry around. It's not like seven, eight years ago where a drone would take up half the size of a van, something like that. A quick drone that can go in your backpack is brilliant. Fantastic, Nick. Really appreciate that introduction. And finally, on to Emily and Gareth, who, as I mentioned before, are battling the elements, should we say, trying to get onto a ferry from the Isle of Mull. But guys, please introduce yourselves and Drone Prep. So I'm Gareth Watmore, CEO of Drone Prep. Currently at Craig Newell Ferry Terminal, and the ferry is coming in. But I promise you we're going to be here for the next half an hour. And we've yeah. got Emily next to me here. I'm the innovation lead at Drone Prep. And basically, Drone Prep split into two main sides. There's mine and Gareth's side, which is the innovation projects. And we go out basically on the ground speaking to everyone and anyone about their almost receptiveness to drone delivery. So say, for example, on the Isle of Mull, we're doing an engagement program for Royal Mail, speaking to all the residents, all the key stakeholders and going... Do you like drones? Do you not like drones? Why don't you like drones? Would they be receptive to drone delivery? And just learning all about the key points and engaging with the key people to understand what their emotions are towards drone delivery. Because without speaking to people, drone delivery is never going to take off. So that's the main side towards the innovation business. And then do you want to talk about the software a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, they're both symbiotically linked because if we're going to open up airspace, we need lots of data out there. We need lots of information out there so people can communicate their different opinions and positions on why we should be using low-level airspace. Touching on Emily's point as well, you know, Drone Prep have put together some really fabulous consortiums of some of the best people in the industry to do Royal Mail's first ever delivery, actually just up the road in Tobermory back in December, but also NHS deliveries down in the Isles of Scilly and proof of concept work. But the platform that we talk about, we've actually mapped all 56 million land parcels in the UK with land ownership data. And it's born out of the frustration that myself and other members of the team who fly drones had five or six years ago now, which is just very difficult to find the right information to get a landowner permission to fly. And there's lots of other things going on in low-level airspace we need to consider to fly legally and responsibly. And we thought putting that information on a platform would open up possibilities. The other thing which you know we're excited to be on this call, I mean, there's some smashing people on this call, and I think the programme that's proposed in Lancashire with UCLAN, our company, you know, we're not VC funded, we're a passion values led business that care deeply about drones. We all love flying drones. And we've been on some programs in Worcestershire where our office is based in Malvern Hills, which has been supported by local authority grants and also by grants from Ordnance Survey. So we've grown our business organically to help the community with the community first. You know, we want to do it for the community for the right reasons. So we've got a lot of synergy with what's happening now in Lancashire. We're desperate to really sort of share any insights that we've got from our journey about how that might help but also excited for the journey that's going on up there and just want to participate in any way we can. Fantastic, guys. Really appreciate you joining us. That's everybody. So now you know the panellists, we are going to get straight into the debate. And we've got a number of questions that we're going to put to the group, which we've been discussing with people from the industry over the last three to four years. And it's getting to that point now where drones are really becoming relevant in a lot of industries. As you can see, we've got people from all over, from different industries all over the country. So a real big one to start with, and I'm going to sort of aim this at the group, but I am going to aim it at Nick to start with. And I know that we had a conversation before this, and it was a really insightful side to see how search rescue element takes some effect on it. But what would your main concerns about UAV technology be moving forward? For me personally, 
technology moving forward is only ever a good thing. And I think the more businesses, the more companies that have access to these sorts of platforms will only make it a better place. We're always going to have the individuals that use them for the wrong reasons, but that could be said for cars, push bikes, anything that's out there. The thing I've been sort of explaining to a lot of people recently is the big uproar about e-scooters on the road or footpath. And that seems to be taking a lot of pressure off drones at the moment. It's great because a lot of people who want to use drones commercially, we all understand we have to have a license. You want to use a chainsaw, you have to have a license. If you want to use a quad bike, you have to have a license. So if you're using things for business, you appreciate you need to have a license. If you are a landowner and you want a chainsaw and you do it to maintain your garden, you don't need a license. It's that same sort of concept that a lot of people with new tech, especially when it becomes cost-effective, you know, back when a drone was two, three, four thousand pounds, not that many people had that sort of money. But now you can go and buy a drone for a hundred or two hundred pounds. They're so accessible. And now the quality of the camera is phenomenal. People want to go and take nice pictures with their drones. Most of them don't understand laws. Most of them don't understand what's right and wrong. But being the qualified side of things, we know where we are. And I appreciate I'm probably preaching to converted for a lot of you that are on the call. But for me, the more that DJI can sell to Joe Public, I mean, they have more money to drive than advance their tech. It's a bit like Ferrari don't just make cars to win F1. They race F1 to sell more Ferraris because that's how they make money. It's a bit like DJI. They can sell 10,000 drones to go public. They'll quite happily do it because there aren't enough businesses that can buy them to advance the tech further and further. So we all have to get on. We're all going to use them in different ways. We just have to be safe in how we do it. Fantastic, Nick. Brilliant. And anybody else? Emily, do you want to give us your two pence on this? Yeah, I think so. So concerns about the tech. I mean, I shared Nick's opinion. I don't really have concerns about the tech at this stage, but I do have concerns about how the tech is perceived by the public. And we can give you lots of anecdotes, but I'll use farmers as a good example. So 70% of the land in the UK is farms. And, you know, agriculture is a huge thing in this country. And at the moment, the way the funding is working with farming is changing. It's going more about environmental stewardship. Now we're coming out of the EU. But actually, if you talk to lots of farmers, they feel quite threatened about drones if they don't use them already. And actually, if the hobbyists, the 220,000 hobbyists that exist to continue flying in those areas... They need to engage with that community. And the typical farmer is worried about seeing a drone and not knowing who flies it. They see the technology and they feel, okay, maybe I'm being spied upon here. Maybe I associate the drone use with people scoping out for fly tipping or theft of expensive machinery on the farm. And the irony is, is if we communicate with those end users before we fly as hobbyists and obviously as professionals, we always do you can turn that round and you can win that relationship. And so I think the technology works brilliantly. And I'm not scared for the technology. And I'm not that type of person. And as a company, we're not those type of people. But I am acutely aware that everyone that sort of uses a drone has that individual responsibility to show that drones are here for good. If the majority of us can all do that in our professional lives, but also as hobbyists as well, then that opens up all these amazing opportunities that we're also trying to push the boundaries on. So I think that's the key take home for us is that the tech's amazing let's always present our best foot forward and showcase to the world what we can do with drones, which is for good, and take people with us. I can't agree more. And I, I know Amanda will probably have a really good point to make about maybe where the manufacturer comes from of certain drones. The main concern is UAV technology. Amanda, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, so for us, we come from a slightly different angle. So most of our flights are done on the nuclear license site and the Sellafield airspace itself, it's a regulated airspace, so you can't get Joe Public flying over so our part of the technology, it's the fact that 
the business itself have embraced the technology. We've got a massive REI project, the Robotics and Artificial Intelligence, which the drones sit nicely under. So the new technology, you can see that things that are coming up in the future and it's fantastic. What you do tend to find from us is you get an aging population on site that look at the drones and other robotics and artificial intelligence that's coming through. And they're concerned for their jobs, really, at the end of the day. Unless they embrace it themselves, unless they're sort of linked into it, you do get a lot of people sitting there going, oh, this new technology is coming in. What does that mean for us in 10, 20 years? Will we still have a job to attend? And it's the reassuring side that you need to say to them. It's like, yeah, although the robotics are coming in and they're coming in fast, everybody will still have a job. The robotics still need to be maintained. The drones still need to be maintained. Even if you look at the BV loss application. So one of the tasks that we're doing at the moment is we are a test partner for the Future Flight Challenge with Seas.ai. And that's the full autonomous beyond visual line of sight flying. And straight away you get people saying, well, if you can do that, if you can have somebody sitting on a computer flying a craft 350 miles away, you don't need me. And it's not the case. You know yourself, there's going to still be jobs out there that you can't do everything remotely and people still need to maintain those instruments, etc. I can probably just elaborate on that point a bit more from what we've seen, Amanda. So just going out into the field, say, for example, on the Isle of Scilly, working with Royal Mail, when we've gone into the people on the ground, the posters on the ground and say, look, Royal Mail are experimenting with drones. They want to introduce it to their fleet. Their first reaction was defence, defence, defence. Because they were like, they're going to come in, they're going to come steal our jobs. And we're like, no, not at all. Royal Mail are looking for them to work with you. They can only support, say, 5%, 1% of your supply chain. They're there to make your lives easier. So say, for example, on the Isle of Mull, speaking to the infamous Tonnan, the postie. He loves the idea of drones because he has to park up his car and then walk two miles down a lane to deliver to one house. Why should he do that and his round be extended by an hour compared to other posties over the road when a drone could fly that one mile, which would take one minute? It's just that idea of getting across that they can be integrated safely and with them and no threat rather than the other things that everyone's thinking of. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, we complement and supplement that service there so no one loses their job. And actually the raw mail stats is they've had four times as many parcels this year because of COVID and the natural shift away from the high street as well. All the staff are absolutely off their feet. So if a new technology can come in and make that easier for the existing staff and help with service delivery, that's got to be a good thing. But you've got to look at it as a wider industry as well. You know, new technology comes along in everything we do. And when people start to look at drones as being a tool, so a screwdriver, a hammer, a saw, Another asset to a builder's arsenal, it's not so much on drones are going to take over the person, they're going to be there to assist. And that's sort of the mindset and the shape of the industry that it is going. But Darren, do you have anything to add on to the end of that question? One of the concerns I have is just how fast standards are going to come out because there's lots of different drone manufacturers. There's lots of companies developing ways of tracking drones and monitoring them with a view to maybe having some kind of air traffic control system for drones. But it's how how does all that get standardized so that you can fly a drone in one place in the UK and you can fly the same drone in another place in the UK that's got different systems and they're all going to work together in the future. Traditionally, rules and regulations in aviation, they just take such a long time to come out. I started working on a project nearly 15 years ago now that was looking at how drones can integrate into UK airspace. And we're still not there today. We've moved a long way, but we're not all the way there yet. And it's really just to see how that can speed up because we're seeing the technology progress really, really fast now. And there's more and more safety features into drones that, that are making them safer and safer. But it's how do we sort of make all the regulatory environment move at the pace we need to, to be able to do all of these use cases. That's the main concern I have, really. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point, actually. So just to sort of pick up on all of those, we're talking about the regulation side and speed of development, the integration with the workforce. And then obviously, as Nick says as well, you know, people actually using drones for good rather than just putting them up over certain areas. But on to the next question. This is a big thing over the last couple of years. We saw Gatwick. We saw what happened there. How can trust be increased? We'll start with Darren. How can trust be increased with drone users to the public and with manufacturers, with everybody, really? Yeah, I think a big thing is about having transparent operations. So a member of the public, if they saw a drone, they'd know where to go to find out what it's doing, for example. Now, some of that will be enabled by having unique identifiers on drones, things like the airspace management systems that are coming in the future, because then all flights, if you're operating legally, there's no reason why you wouldn't be saying why you're there and what you're doing. You know, So if a member of the public saw a drone operating, you could perhaps get an app out. What is that drone doing? And that way you can see if it's not appearing on there, then you know it's potentially something untoward going on. So I, I can see that the technology is there to do that today. There's companies that have produce miniaturized transponders that you can put on drones. They weigh a few grams. They're not going to be very expensive. And we're working with one company at the moment to actually do a flight trial of these kind of systems later this year. And I think that that kind of technology is going to take us a long way. And just going back to the human involvement in it all, with the artificial intelligence, where you put more and more control into a drone and allow it to do more and more things independently, Another big thing about the trust is having the right relationship between the human involvement and what the machine is doing. So you've got to sort of let the machine do what the machine's good at, but make sure the human's still there to do the things that the human's good at. And that's often when things go wrong. That's where things like the AI can't actually cope and you need the human pilot there to be able to take over. As they get more intelligent, I think you almost need more human intervention to supervise it. But I think those two things together, the IDs, the transparency, and making sure there's a good human interface with these machines going forward, I think all those kind of things will help with the trust arguments. And again, you guys talking about the good things you're doing, getting the good news out there about how drones are used, that's one of the best things we can do to sort of promote trust in drones. I can echo that, Darren, um, from the nuclear site. So if you go back to sort of, I think it was almost about four years ago when they actually carried out the first UAV flight across the site. And every man and his dog were out watching and waiting with bated breath, making sure nothing went wrong. And it's like you say, it's the more you do it and the more you sell your stories and your successes to say this is what happens. But it's also not just your successes. We had a recent bird strike on a, one of our craft. And it's also sharing those stories to say, look, the craft that we've got, we've got redundancy in it so that if anything does happen, it's not just going to fall out the sky like a lead balloon. So it's boosting the confidence that way as well from people. Absolutely. Um, Emily, you mentioned about the trust issues as well, where you guys are on. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Because I think it ties in really nicely. Definitely. Yeah. So from our side, I think the main thing to help tackle trust is the engagement side and tailoring it to all different audiences. Even people in schools, like young children, if you speak to them at a young age and go, look, drones are really cool. You can do X, Y and Z. You can go fly medical supplies. You can use it to survey buildings so you don't send people up in dangerous situations. Educate them on all those good things. But then at the same time, simultaneously go, look, be careful where you fly. Make sure you follow the rules. So set them up from an early age. And even say, for example, landowners, the amount of landowners I've gone out to speak to and they've gone, oh, I hate drones, they're a privacy issue, they've come snooping on me. And it's just saying that is the small percentage. And it's often people don't understand that they're not allowed to be there. So talking to the landowners and saying that's that 1% of the sector that don't know what they're doing, but then going to that 1% of the sector and going, 
do you know you shouldn't have flown there and it's caused this person to get really vented up I think it's just tailoring your engagement to each people and just listening to what they say and don't get defensive on it just listen and they've obviously got that opinion for a reason and eventually everyone will air the opinions and everyone else will follow and it's just that little domino effect from what I've seen from all my different talks you've got a few good examples about like the puffins for example oh gosh yeah yeah I mean I'd so completely mirror what Emma mm. says like I mean trust anyway I mean if you break down trust without thinking about drones it's all about communication and connecting with people and understanding something which isn't your viewpoint and I think actually aviation as a sector we are all guilty of being slightly siloed at times and seeing it from just the aviation perspective but if drones are really to take off and serve all these different sectors we need to understand what it's like to work at Sellafield for example and Amanda's brilliant at that obviously we need to understand you know what it's like to work for Royal Mail or work for the NHS and what those unique set of challenges are for those organizations and then see afterwards how do drones help them and they won't help everything so I think that's absolutely key. But you wanted to mention the puffing anecdote. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So we did some engagements with the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. And I suppose a good anecdote there is lots of people who fly within the drone code, they look for sparse areas to fly. You know, places where you're following the drone code, you're not going to cause any bother, you're going to enjoy your hobby, it's going to be fantastic. And often people head for the coastline because, you know, that's pretty sparsely populated, absolutely fantastic. Flamborough Head up in Yorkshire, you've got one of the largest puffin populations and that's actually protected by environmental law and you've got various wildlife trusts and environmental bodies safeguarding that population. And we've had a situation up there where hobbyist drone pilots who may not have known about that population have been flying some beautiful locations, been flying quite close to the cliffs during puffin mating season and puffin baby season where they're all sort of stuck to the cliff waiting to fly for the first time. And when the drones get too close, the baby puffins fall off the cliff and perish. They fall and they perish right in the bottom there. And if you're the drone pilot, you don't know that. You don't know that that's the impact that you're having. And actually it only happens for four weeks a year when these birds are nesting, but it's one of the most crucial populations we've got. And obviously the environmental people based there that are responsible for that, they're up in arms with the issue and it creates a really negative relationship between the landowner, the environmental stakeholder and the drone pilot. But the key is obviously is if you can inform the drone pilots before they go that that's potentially the impact of their use at that very specific time, no one really wants that on their conscience. I've never spoken to a drone pilot in my life that says, I'm going out today because I'd like to kill some puffins. You know, it's not really on the radar, is it? And if you know that's something that's going to happen, you won't fly and you'll understand the reason for not flying. So a drone pilot, yeah, we're just keen on connecting, yeah, talking to people so they can understand the different positions because for 11 months a year you can fly and you wouldn't endanger the wildlife. But for one month of the year, you probably are if you're flying too close. So let's tell those stories and let's try and fix those problems before everyone gets completely wound up about it from both sides and detriment happens. Really appreciate that, Gareth. Great story. And I think it's something that we need to be more collaborative about. The whole premise of drones for goods really doesn't get enough praise a lot of the time. Because I think sometimes you can overpraise a company for what they're doing because they're doing it week in, week out. Which sort of leads to the next question I'm going to put to the group, which is, what is the most beneficial use of drones that you have seen? And this can obviously be for the use of drones or the actual data collected. Amanda, we'll start with you, if that's okay. Not to put you on the spot for the first answer, but what's the most beneficial use that you've seen a drone be used for? For us on site, one of the most recent beneficial uses for us, it probably doesn't seem like a big deal, but there's a lot of areas on the Sellafield site that are historically being used. Doors were closed 10, 20, 30 years ago. And if you think 30 years ago, did people keep correct records of everything? Did everything remain, all those records remain, etc.? 
probably not as good as what we do today. So this is one area that we've recently entered into using one of the drones to go in and actually map the area itself. So this was an area that hadn't been touched for about 30 years. Door was closed and it left pitch black. The most recent drawings were probably on somebody's cigarette packet back in the day and it's gone in the bin kind of situation. So we've gone into there and mapped the area. You can imagine 30 years worth of dust and no entry whatsoever. So it was a challenging environment to get into, but basically we went in, flew the drone successfully, managed to map the area, which led the area engineers to be able to do a recovery plan, so to speak, so that they could go in and make that area safe to go in to do the decommissioning work on it. So that for us on a site, it was huge for us on a site to be able to do something like that. And again, it goes back to that trust issue. So people are saying, well, what happens if you put that craft in there and you lose it in there? And so, again, it was all the communications, it was the stakeholder arrangements, et cetera, to make sure that people understood what we were doing. And, you know, what we weren't just going to throw something in and hope for the best. It was planned correctly and we communicated every step of the way with all the stakeholders so that everybody was comfortable with what we were doing. Fantastic. No, really good use case. Uh, Darren, have you got a use case that you want to talk about? So I'll take a favourite. But I can think of a few. I mean, I've been really impressed watching all the long-range medical deliveries that are going on, say in Africa, where they've been sending medicines and vaccines using drones. I mean, that's looking really successful. We've got an exciting new project at the moment where we're trying to use drones with ground-penetrating radars to detect buried landmines around the world. Now, that could be a game-changer in landmine detection. At the moment, people are still putting themselves at risk with metal detectors poking sticks into the ground, you know, and I think people have been waiting for a lightweight, affordable way to do that with a drone and the technology is just about there now. We're actually going to do some tests in the next few weeks in the UK. We're actually building a dummy landmine and we're going to fly the drone over it and test it there. We would have been actually going out to a real landmine site in Cambodia if we could travel to do it there. But yeah, I think when you've got your humanitarian projects, I mean, you've seen drones as well for reducing malaria in some regions where they've been spraying anti-malarial treatments on rivers and things like that that have made a massive difference to local communities. So I think there's a lot of untapped potential yet in that regard with them. Fantastic. Yeah, the medical supplies, I believe that that's being tested with some of the universities down in London as well. So we'll have to get a bit of a collaborative conversation going with that as well. So, you know, at the end of the day, we'll probably say this a hundred more times, the whole idea of collaboration and innovation goes hand in hand. Emily and Gareth, what's your standout moment for you guys that you've had drones used for? It's touching on what Darren says. It's actually absolutely medical for us. Like, it's been the most incredible time. Like, COVID's come and drones have found their place where they can help people. The Alza City Project, which is a project we pulled together involving wind racers, Amazing point-to-point solution can carry 200 kgs. Looks like an aircraft from the 1930s and the very modern-looking Skyport's vertical takeoff solution to do Winter Island. The amazing thing we've achieved on the Alza City project for four weeks, as well as the raw items, is we've been able to, which is 27 miles offshore, that don't get any deliveries of medical items for 45% of the days of the year. We're in the 21st century. And, you know, we've got the NHS, and the NHS is meant to be equal at the point of source for everyone. And we've got some brilliant medical people over there, but the geography and the transport links don't, often the opportunity to deliver the type of healthcare which they have the capability to do. With drones coming in, we can change that. And we've done some really pioneering proof of concept around flying antigen tests and getting them turned around. We've also done proof of concept around maintaining cold chain for vaccines, which could have a huge legacy for COVAX and Gavi as we, we donate those out to Africa. We've had contact from Africa since doing that project. And then sort of spinning it back up to Mulligan, you know, there's been a three-month airbridge run by Skyports that we've supported. And some of the evidence that's come out of the NHS there has been absolutely fantastic. They've 
one of the interventions here has actually saved a man's eyesight on the island because they turn around the test in two hours as opposed to 48. And that's the medical people yeah. telling us that. And you just got to feel hugely proud that in the last year, drones have offered that type of capability. And they've sort of shown us the way that we can use drones to level up transport, medicine, healthcare provision. I mean, the possibilities are endless and incredibly exciting. I think just touching on Darren's point, for me, it's just using these drones to improve people's quality of life. And I think it's not just us commercial bodies that are using it in the real world. I just want to give a shout out to the people at universities who are actually researching. So, for example, at University of Worcester, I was working in the office alongside a woman called Sophie Pierce, who was using drones to measure image velocimetry. So, flooding events so often a lot of people don't know people go into flooding environments and die because they're putting themselves in danger just to measure the flood depth and how fast it's going so she's been looking at can the drones be used to survey how fast that stream's running and potentially predict floods in the future to get people evacuated in time it's all these people researching all these cool projects that are eventually going to transform all of our lives without us all even knowing so it's just everyone working together on this drones for good and improving those quality of lives which i'm pretty sure nick knows a lot about with his rescue side Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, so I think the one that I've been involved with most is finding high resolution people. And I think the advancements of quality of camera that you can put uh, you know, hundreds of objects up in the sky and you can zoom four times digital zoom now of the RGB cameras, the thermal capability, searching at night, searching dim woodlands, that sort of thing. But as what we're actually using it for now, technology is just phenomenal. Yeah. Boots on the ground is always our primary search technique. You know, go and walk all these areas searching on the ground, but large arable fields, you know, 20 hectares in size, and um, we can stick a drone up and we can cover that off in about five, 10 minutes. It's you know, you're covering the ground centre quicker. And I think the next level for me is then having the ability to then move the medical supplies we need it. So we've already got the drone, we've got professionals on the ground, you know, we've got paramedics, we've got first responders. If there's anything extra they need, they haven't got with them, we can then fly that to the Looking at it as the agricultural side, having a drone on a farm where there might have been an issue with the crop, it might have been flooding. Um, last year, there's quite a lot of flooding surveys done to look at crop loss, that side of things, and knowing exactly how you know, this scale is a problem. But yeah, so in terms of the search and rescue side, thermal camera, 100 meters up in the sky is a complete game changer for us, and it removes all out costs of our Fantastic. Uh, yeah, the, the whole search and rescue element of having thermal and zoom, just that whole implementation into the search and rescue and the police is just phenomenal. And just to actually touch on that point, we worked with the University of Aberdeen and they went over to Stromboli. It was in the news uh, a number of months ago now where a volcano erupted. But they use drones to identify hotspots on the side of volcanoes. So if ever there is a large change over time or they are seeing you know, the temperature increase and increase, they can alert the authorities and then they can go, and they can evacuate sites. And in real world scenario where that is effective and that's useful for modern day people and for actual society is that it's quick to do. You're not sending somebody up the side of a volcano. You can be up and down in 10 minutes. So to be able to do that, it's not only saving somebody from climbing up that mountain, but it's, it's also the speed at which they're doing it as well. Brilliant. There's some really good answers there, guys. Really thorough. I think one of the big things that a lot of people will be discussing and thinking about at home listening to this is the next topic. Should we be concerned as society and as drone pilots about the data and privacy of drones and why? Darren, we'll start with yourself. Yeah, I mean, we've seen existing 
data and privacy laws, they haven't really updated them around drones because I don't think they're that much different to things like CCTV cameras. They make it a lot easier, perhaps, to video someone or photograph something, but I don't think the law around that needs to change in any way because there's so many CCTV cameras across the world and people sort of get used to those as well. And again, if somebody is using them to invade privacy, they tend to be operating outside the law anyway. They probably wouldn't even be flying them in accordance with rules and regulations. So my view is that there's existing laws around that already to provide the public with that protection. Brilliant. Thanks, Aaron. Amanda, on the security side of drones, what's your take on it? Data protection, how is Sellafield doing with that topic? It's huge for us, as you can imagine. We could fly over areas of site and if that gets into the wrong hands, then anybody could build a brilliant picture, especially what we said earlier about the image quality of the data that you get in these days. So for us, we've got to jump through numerous hoops to tick the box for our security team to make sure that doesn't happen. Part of that for us is the encryption of the devices, etc. On the wider scale, it's one of those things that you can say, well, you've got all these rules and regulations. And again, it goes back to that thing. If somebody wants to breach those, they're going to breach those. And they're probably the ones that are breaching the rules for flying in the first place. So as much as you can put steps in place to keep people's privacy in place, etc. If somebody wants to get over those hurdles, then they will get over those hurdles. In terms of manufacturers, in terms of actual drone technology, are you restricted in any way at Sellafield? Or are you quite open to different types of manufacturers? We're open to manufacturers as long as we can prove the security aspect on them so that we can prove that either the encryption is high enough that nobody's going to get their hands on anything, nobody can sort of break into those craft and get the data off. If the encryptions are a bit lower, then some of the craft that we fly, we've only got sort of a 10-minute flight time. So for somebody to actually be able to breach that encryption in that 10 minute, it's been proven already that it's slim to none. But again, it's all those discussions that we have with our security team. We could buy anything that we wanted, as long as we can prove to those that we've got the correct security measures in place, that nobody could get the information unless we've sent it to them. We were talking the other day about UK suppliers of equipment, etc. Like I say, we're open to purchasing off anybody as long as we can prove that security side and the safety side. So the redundancy side is a massive thing for us on the site. So the actual data side, in terms of it being stored, because I imagine, you know, doing different surveys, inspections, Where are you storing that information? Is it cloud-based? Is it server-based? No, currently it's all server-based on our internal servers. Again, you probably look at the nuclear industry and think they're leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. But the more you talk to government agencies and other government businesses, you'll find that we're probably the ones that put every single barrier in place. It goes back to the trust thing and you've got to prove tenfold that this is actually the right way to do things. So yeah, it's all on our internal servers. Everything's labelled. So if I do a flight over a building, A lot of the images that we could happily share with you guys, it wouldn't be an issue. There is certain areas that it would become official sensitive that we couldn't share with you at all. So I would say one of the biggest parts of our pilot's jobs is actually looking at those photos, those images post-flight and ploughing through some 3,000 images and cropping things out that could, if they got into the wrong hands, be seen as a security risk. So that's the part of the job that they really don't like doing. Fantastic. Go on, Emily. Well, I really like to mind this point of having to prove ourselves. When I say my parents are pretty anti-drone, they don't understand drones too. And the way I describe it to them is, as a sector, we have to keep going and prove that we're okay. Because, say, for example, on our phones, we have Facebook, we have Google, we have Instagram. And people don't know that they're actually feeding so much of our data. So, for example, if I've been to the pub with my friends and I've spoken about a four-pack of beer that was on sale at Aldi, I then go on my phone and see advertisements for four-pack of beers at Aldi. No one knows this information's being harvested, so it's kind of... 
people shouldn't be so scared about the drone industry and the data and the privacy, but we've just got to prove to them that we're probably far safer and far more responsible because we're a new technology and we're evolving. So we're making sure we're ticking absolutely every box. So I just wanted to reiterate Amanda's point because I really liked yeah, it. So. I think that's a really strong point. I mean, the other thing as well is what sort of drone are you using? I mean, they've all got different monitors. You know, a lot of our delivery drones, for example, they don't have cameras on them. So the privacy issue is not one to be considered in the first place. So I think there's a role for us as drone users as well to explain how we're using drones and what sort of issues we might be impinging and actually how we're navigating those issues. And Amanda was brilliant explaining the process there at Sellafield. But I think we can all do more as an industry to reach out and say, actually, this is the stuff we are doing. This is the data we're collecting. And this is how we're storing it. And actually, we're not here to scare you. We're here to work with you. And the data will be useful for your daily lives. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Nick? Yeah, so in terms of GDPR, a lot of what we're handling is sensitive to the police. So, yeah, our biggest security issue is keeping it safe and secure. And there's only two people in the team that can access that data. The only reason we'd ever need to access it is if something went to court. For any reason, on one of our searches, it gets stored for a certain amount of years and deleted. The likelihood is every video I've ever taken, it will never be seen again. If there was anything that we take a decision or we don't need to hold back, you know, two people sunbathing in their garden, we delete it. We don't need to store that sort of video. It's not relative to what we're doing. We get rid of it. It's all part of that sort of using the common sense of that side of data. I think with the whole GDPR thing, I think most people, it, a lot of it is common sense. It's not just great story, but see, you then want to use it for anything. So if I took a video of some police arresting a missing person or whatever it is, and then we share that on our Facebook page to try and get some likes and some followers and some donations, there'd be a lot of problems with that because we don't have any of the permissions we need to use. I'm sure most of us here, we're probably using it for us or our clients or the people we work for rather than marketing purposes or that side of it. So I think the GDPR side is educating people on, I don't need your permission to take your picture, you're in a public place, which is quite key. It's what I do with it after that, which is important. And a lot of them say, oh, you can't buy your drone equipment. Well, depending on your license, yes, you can. Depending if you knew you were there, like if you're hiding in the woodlands, is a different thing. But they wouldn't get angry if it's any problem. Brilliant. Cheers, Nick. On to the next question. Another really good one. How can local and regional governments support drone technology and skills? We'll start with Darren, because this is something that I think is really close to home for you guys. So, yeah, how can local and regional governments support drone technology and skills? Have you done? I think it's often about looking at the local authorities and their individual economic development strategies, because quite often you'll see things like enterprise zones, business clusters forming around certain topics, subject areas. We haven't really got that for drones in the UK, where you could say, oh, there's a drone cluster there where the local authorities have created a place for businesses to sort of come together and do that collaboration piece where they can test the drones safely. And I think local authorities are a key stakeholder in making that actually happen. It's one of the things we're learning from the aerial uptake project around Europe is that some regions have really got ahead of the curve on this and they've already got these sort of drone incubation spaces and it's really helping to grow the businesses. We visited one in the Netherlands in a place called Enschede. They took an old military airfield, they converted it into a drone innovation park and they've got all kinds of businesses moved in there now that are working together and collaborating. There's an airfield there so they can go out and test safely. When we visited it, there was beyond line of sight drone delivery trials going on outside. 
So local governments can actually really play a part in that. And from these kind of things, I think it really is about the local government, industry, academia, and the public getting behind one of these big ideas to make it happen in a certain region, because you can't have any one of those alone pushing it. But when you can all come together and agree on a vision or a plan for that kind of thing, then you've got a chance for it to actually happen and make a difference. Fantastic. Really appreciate that. Just before you do go, we're talking about local and regional government supporting droves, but yourselves are supporting local businesses as well. I know you mentioned it quickly at the start. Do you just want to go into a bit more detail about how that's being used? Yeah, so we've been doing it on a sort of small scale for quite a few years where we'll partner with a company that's trying to develop some technology and we'll use some of the skills at the university and some of our facilities to help them accelerate that and develop it more quickly, get it to market more quickly. Well, we applied for one of the last tranches of European funding, which is about regional development. And that allows you to basically have a team in place where you support businesses in a particular topic area. So we've actually created what we're calling the Lancashire Innovation Drone Zone, which is a virtual drone zone at the moment. It's got a target of supporting hundreds of businesses over the next couple of years. And the university has lots of different ways of supporting them. We can help with design, with tests. We can help with education around business cases and drone use cases and doing technology demonstrations as well. So we've invested really heavily over the last year. We've spent £1.3 million on drone equipment at the university. I have got so many toys to play with and so many boxes to unpack. George will know about this. <laughs> but we've got lots and lots of equipment that can really help us demonstrate the technology to lots of different sectors. The technology could be taken up in, say, asset management or construction industry. I think that's where this program can help because we can do demonstrations and we can show how the technology can be used. And it's only when you've got that evidence that you can see how you can do things faster or safer or cheaper that you can start to implement the change in your organisations. Brilliant. Nick, do you want to comment on how local and regional governments can support drones and skills? Yeah, so of course, as search and rescue work closely with the police and fire anyway. So we have some pretty good routes, crime commissioners, into the council, that side of things. The problem we have from those sorts of levels is there's got to be someone in that organisation that understands drones, firstly, and wants to back a project with it. And then we'll probably need a, like a backer or somebody to fund it, basically. Unless you have somebody to drive it within that organisation, the likelihood is it will never happen. Because you'll probably have that person that thinks they're a waste of time on that or they'd rather spend the money on cutting verges on a road no one drives. So it's one of those that has to be someone to buy in. You could waste a lot of time trying to help organisations do things, but unless they have a buy-in or can see the benefits at the end, then yeah, it can be really hard work with it. But drones for good is always a good advert for them. That then it means they're more accepting of the technology so that when another industry wants to use it, they already think drones are good. Why can't they let this person use it for their surveying job or something like that? So I think it's that sort of step-by-step process. Fantastic. And over to Amanda, how can local governments and organisations help? So I think if we touch on the local governments, I almost think that we need to do some more support through the schools at an early age to understand. I think it was Emily that was saying before, if you get into the schools early, say this is what the drones can do, but teach them the right way of doing things as well. The future of the up and coming stars that are going to be coming out of the school, it's going to be second to none. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And we all know that the industry is moving at such a great pace that there's going to be lots of different people out there that are going to have 
a drone business or be a part of a drone business somewhere. For Sellafield, we support our local community, like I was saying in my little introduction. So we do the social economic sort of support and we reach out to the local communities quite a bit. So although we can't spend any money in the community as such, so we can't sort of give money away, etc., because it's the taxpayers' money, we do try and support in other ways. So we do, if, if there's little projects that we can help with, we can go out and we can do our support, offer our time, offer our skills and experience for free. Touched on sort of the skills aspect. We do work experience so that the schools can come in and get an understanding of not just the drones because we do sit under the engineering and maintenance banner. So it's the drones as well as the engineering and maintenance sector to say, look, this is a future job role that you could have. And it'd be nice if the governments do put a bit more money into that kind of thing. So the work experience side, it tends to be a goodwill gesture. Whereas if you could maybe get some sort of better funding for work experience, you could maybe sort of showcase different experiences on a completely different level. And like you said, the drones for one, throw a little bit of money into that and say what we can do. You wouldn't need much. You're saying there, Darren, about the training rigs, etc. If you had somewhere like that where you can even get the kids coming to say, can I come and fly safely in an area that I know is safe with experts that know what they're doing, the future, it's going to be bright for them. Absolutely. I think some really good points there. One that stood out for me the most is what Nick mentioned as well about trying to find information on companies' websites. It needs to be really easy to find. It needs to be easy to understand. And I think that resonates around the drone community as a whole. This is what we do. This is what we love to do. And I think it's telling the general public what is available. And I think that's the way forward for for both innovation, but also for the drone industry. If we've got anything else to add on that, now's the time. But I think what we'll do is we'll go on to the next question. And it's really about perceptions. We've spoken about how the drone industry and drone users are viewed around the country for different reasons. Obviously, we've got Nick who searched rescue element, Amanda, where it's an asset integrity on their own site, and then Darren helping and bringing through these new companies to be, you know, at the end of the day, the service providers. But perceptions for you guys, you'll have all been surrounded by the drone industry for a number of years. What's changing in terms of the actual perception from the general public? Over the last four or five years or however long you've been involved with drones, what's changing for those perceptions of drones and why? Should we start with Nick? Yeah, overall, perceptions have got a lot better. As I was saying earlier, you now see signs on you know, roadways, people's houses, stuff like that. And drones are sort of a known tool for collecting data, taking pictures. And I think because they are so more cost-effective, they probably know someone that owns one, even if it's just a hobbyist, even if it's just a toy drone, they probably bought their child a £20 one off Amazon or something like that. I think for a lot of people, the physical drone itself is fine. I think it's the picture element that worries people. And then it's the part when you hear the horror stories of gangs using them to drop things into prisons or people spying on nuclear power stations or something like that. That's where the sort of negative element comes. But I, I think as a whole, everyone has got a lot better. I think the Civil Aviation Authority is a lot clearer now than it used to be. Um, I used to fly under a PIFCO, and I appreciate that there's lots of issues between PIFCO and the A2 and then the GC side of things. And I choose which one I'm flying under on the which day because they give me different abilities over other ones. But I think the Civil Aviation Authority are a lot clearer. I think the A2 license, which the majority of pilots will probably get to start with, is a lot clearer of what you can do, what you can't do. I think with new rules coming on, the manufacturer's stamp of certain drones have changed the game again, although there aren't any drones available at the moment, but that's 
discussing in the retro do it with stuff and all stories stuff. Uh, but I think the general perception of them is, is a lot positive, yeah, really positive. I think a lot of the negative has gone. You still have a few older generations that you know, still hate motor cars. You know, they're always going to be there. But I think in general, it's good now. Fantastic. Cheers, Nick, for that. I think just to touch on that as well, the A2 versus the GVC, it's a great intro to what can and can't be done with drones. And I spotted Duncan Turner, actually, I had a conversation with him today from Seven Children Water. They won't let anybody onto their site who doesn't have a GVC, which is obviously the carry-on from the PFCO from last year. And I think when you do a qualification and you don't have a flight assessment or somebody saying, yeah, to sign off, I think that's the next step in the drone industries sort of saying, yes, I do approve this. We are going to get to that next stage of drone use of being sensible and of being safe. So yeah, it's a great topic to be on. Amanda, how are things changing in terms of perception, both to the general public, but also you obviously mentioned it previously about internally as well. How are people seeing your department and how's that affecting you? Yeah, so I'll start on the internal part. It's brilliant now. So you go back three, four years ago and you've done the first flight on site and it was a scary place to be. You look at now, sort of over the last 18 months, and excuse the pump, the business has really taken off for the UAVs on the Sellafield site. People are happy to use them. People are used to them. So they don't sort of panic and phone the police on site now and say, there's a drone in the air, there's terrorists coming to get us. They realise that, you know what, these are actually more a day-to-day activity and they're happy to see them and used to seeing them and they don't get as worried about what's going to happen when it flies over me. Am I going to have any cause for concern, etc.? So that's really good for us. Again, that goes back to all the communications that we were talking about. It's building all the trust and making sure that everybody knows. So we put communications out when we do the flights on site. So that's how they know. The whole of the site knows that there's the drone flight and it's us. If they're saying something else, then fair enough, they can start panicking and inform the police again. That's a different conversation altogether. But yeah, general public, etc. It's becoming second nature, isn't it? It's just one of those things. People are getting used to, you said about the driverless cars and people sort of start panicking about that. And that's probably where the drones were a couple of years ago. When you think the first drones that they seen in the air, they were probably whole scale sort of panic thinking, my word, what's these things that are going to be filling the air and, and what they're going to be doing, what they're spying on, can it fall out of the sky, can it hurt me, etc. I think you've just got to reassure people. And one of the best cases that I sort of had a conversation with somebody the other day and they were saying about the drones and are you not worried, etc., etc. And I said, well, take it back to when you could go on a plane on holiday and you got on that plane. Uh, we're on about the autonomous plane and think about your pilots. Do you think your pilot physically flies that plane from A to B? Or do you think he takes off, pops it into autopilot, gets it so far across the sky, takes control again and lands it again? And they looked at me and thought, yeah, I can see what you mean. I said, well, that's exactly the same as autonomous flying for drones. It's no different. And it's understanding your abilities and your equipment's abilities to know that everything's safe. So, yeah, I think... If you break it down into examples that's already out there, you'll probably find a lot of similarities that you can encourage people and say, look, the naysayers, and you can say there's other examples out there that is already happening. And just because this is smaller and you can see things and there is them scared monger stories, then it doesn't necessarily mean it's the worst thing in the world. Great point and great idea using their old perception as well. Darren, finally for you, before we go on to the last question, perceptions, how are they changing and why? I think Nick touched on this before. I think... Just the word drone always has that emotion around it. But I think that's changing now. When you say the word drone, I imagine most people probably think of something like a quadcopter instead of a big military aeroplane. And that was one of the big barriers many years ago about when you were trying to talk about drone use and drones for good. I think the other issue now perhaps with the public might be that a lot of drones are seen as toys and they don't 
always understand how to differentiate between sort of professional use equipment and the drones that you see on the high street, for example. So I think there's a bit of misunderstanding around that. But I think seeing regular use by like emergency services, that's made them much more acceptable and much more familiar to people. That's really helped, I think, with public acceptance of the use. But yeah, I think the general perception is that they're getting safer, they're being used a lot more. When cars first started being used on roads and people used to walk in front of the car with a red flag, I always felt drones have been a bit like that until recently, where you had to sort of warn everybody you were going to use them and get all the permissions in place. And and now it's starting to relax a little bit more, especially with the smaller drones, and you can sort of get a little bit more freedom on how you operate them. So I think it is changing, and I think now that smaller drones can be flown with a lot more freedom, I think people will start accepting them a lot more. Fantastic. One last question, and it's a quick one. What do we all think the future holds for drones? We'll start with you, Nick. In terms of what you're doing now, what can you see and what do you envision happening over the next two, five, ten years? I think it would be a big area for artificial intelligence and that sort of learning side of things. So instead of it relying on me and my eyes looking at the screen, there'll be a lot of automated stuff going on whilst I'm making sure that it's safe for things in the air. That'll be a huge sort of area from us and our point of view. The future I want to see sooner rather than later is beyond visual line of sight and removing the distances at which we can fly, even if it means another qualification. But you know, having to move every 500 metres just so I can go and have a look at another field is quite tedious. So it would be sort of either relaxation of the rules for a tougher licence to get. So I think in the UK, there's just so many rights of way, public roads, general public, that our red tape is so strict, understandably why. But I think there should be a point at which you can start to unlock things a lot. Obviously, I'm not saying quicker, just you know, make it more available for those that are doing it in the right way to do so. Brilliant. Darren, what do you see for the future? Yes, yeah, similar points. More and more automation. So, you know, you'll be able to supervise drones doing the tasks a lot more than actually operating them tactically. I think they'll be much more capable. I think there will be more and more embedded technology in them to make them safe and that will sort of enable a lot of that and i think things like product standards coming out that's always been a big issue around things like the online site flag the fact there was no sort of engineering standards for these drones you know a conventional aircraft everything all the standards are out there for what you need to do to manufacture them and test them and prove that they're safe and when we start getting standards like that for drones, I think that will really open the use cases and we'll start seeing a lot more of the, the online of sight flying and potentially longer distance operations as well. Fantastic. And finally, Amanda, what's the future for drones, both the technology and for Cellophil as well? Yeah, technology-wise, I think it's exactly the same as what Nick and Darren have both said there. It's the artificial intelligence side, it's the autonomous flights, it's the BV loss. It's having those air corridors and everything set up. So all the other things that we were saying, all the good things, it's building upon what we're doing now, being able to help and assist as opposed to just being these metal things that are flying around the sky. Using them as tools. So I think a big one for us is to understand what additional tooling resources we could potentially get them to use. Somebody once asked me, it wasn't so long ago actually, can a drone turn a screwdriver? How far away are we from that? It probably isn't as far away as what everybody thinks it will be. So once they get to actually be able to do that kind of activity, I think that's going to be a fantastic place. 
Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it was two years ago, uh, Leeds University designed drones that filled in potholes on tarmac roads. If you told my dad that, he'd invest straight away. Bloody hell. For Christmas, it's always a topic of conversation. I think everybody would plough plenty of money into those ones at the minute. <laughs> Brilliant. So that's it for the panellists' questions. But we've got some really good questions coming up. And I'll just send these on to you guys. A really good question for you, Amanda, actually, is obviously you mentioned about having different drones and where they're from. What's your perception on the use of Chinese technology? It's not particularly well liked. We'll say that we don't really like flying it on the site if we can at all avoid it. We do have the DJI products. We can't avoid it. You know yourself, some of them products are still fantastic craft to fly. But yeah, most of the time, if we can steer away from those, we will steer away from those. And that comes from the security aspect. There's a lot of sort of unknowns about what can be dug down deep into the software and see exactly what can be sent across the airwaves, so to speak. Fantastic. Darren, I've got a good one for yourselves. In terms of the actual technology, is the wider deployment of drone operations, is it ready for that? And what are the main barriers preventing that at the moment? And I think the big thing around that is probably the delivery side of things. I mean, this is probably a question that's perfect for drone prep. But for you guys, what's stopping drones from you know going everywhere for you? I would say it is about safety technology, really. One of the big barriers was the collision avoidance risk. So a lot of the CAA regulations talk about if you want to fly the online site, which of course enables so many different use cases, you need some kind of collision avoidance system to prevent the drone from hitting other aircraft or other drones or buildings or infrastructure on the ground. There isn't a proven system to do that at the moment. So that's one of the key challenges. I think the other one is being able to track and monitor the position of them. You've got issues around the communications being reliable. Maintaining the comms is a big challenge. It also comes down to the standards that I mentioned, because you're relying on the software in the drone to keep that drone safe when your communications, for example, are not working. There needs to be some integrity in that software. There needs to be some standards to the way it's developed and tested so that you've got confidence that it isn't going to fail. They're the big barriers at the moment. The CAA have regulated around, so they're trying to allow and promote the use. But they're the key challenges that need to be overcome before we start seeing drones everywhere. Fantastic. Nick, how do we educate the public, non-drone users, in the long term? What's your thoughts on that? We keep doing what we're already doing. I think that's brilliant. I've always been a bit hesitant saying education at school level. I think they're the generation that will get the technology. They're young enough to understand it and get it. And when they get out to school level, they'll be the generation that will be designing the new thing that replaces the drone. It is the older generations, it's generations like my parents that are in their 60s and 70s that just will probably never understand it. But it is promoting the good stories, it's promoting the good we do. And actually, if you're a builder and you need to go and survey a house and they say, how much is it? And they say, well, it's two and a half grand with scaffolding or it's a thousand pounds with a drone for survey. They'll be like, oh, yeah, drones are great. And I think that's where it's really going to make more progress is that side of it where it's just naturally going to be evolving. You can't really start bringing it into EastEnders or the TV or big campaigns on TV. You could do, you know, when there is the whole health issues with sugar in food and drink, there are TV adverts about sugar. You know, could you start running TV adverts on drone safety and drone awareness? I don't think it's quite the same thing. I think we're progressing in the right way. 
not as quickly as I'd like, but I think it's quicker than it could have been. And I think you know, most people are getting there now, but there's always going to be that bracket that are never going to be accepted. Great answer, great answer. And I think we've just about got time for one more. Um, so I'll sort of throw this out into the middle. How do we overcome the lack of perception to the height with Joe Public? You know, Joe Bloggs, who's just stood there watching when you're flying. The 50-meter height limitation for people is difficult. Flying a drone at 120 meters looks very different to depending on the drone size. So how is this going to be something? Is it something that you have as a, this is the drone on a sort of stand, it's giving it the height? Is there a way that you have envisioned doing this, making it a little bit easier? Because I always get the same stories from our customers. Well, I had a crowd of people watching me, trying to look over my shoulder, asking me questions. How do we stop that from happening? Is there been a scenario where that's happened to you guys? So within what I do, I always have a spotter with me because the idea is I'm searching with the screen on the controller, so I'm not paying yeah. attention to what's in the space. So if people come to me, the spotter turns into liaison officer and then I turn into, I'm now flying the drone, I'm not searching anymore. And we train spotters internally within the team. Anyone that plays golf is pretty bang on with their distances. Anyone that's never played golf, normally not very good. In terms of height, I tend to use church towers, church spires. All the information about their height is normally regularly available. There's normally data on wind turbines and their heights. So you can use that sort of reference point to try and tell or train people what the heights are. But I think Joe Public, you've got no chance. You could be a mile away and they think you're flying over them. You could be 200 metres away and they think you're over them. You could be right over them. They don't even notice you. So it's so tough with distances. People don't know on a motorway what the three, the two, and the one is to a junction. You know, there's people driving cars that probably can't even see those signs. So I think general public perception is going to be so hard in terms of distance. But as I say, golfers seem to get it. <laughs> the depth of perception is neat. So some people have got the depth of perception completely nailed and they're fantastic at it. Other people, they just, it doesn't matter what they can do. It's obviously something that you either train yourself to understand or there's some magic chemistry goes on in your brain to understand between your brain and your eyes that that is at that distance. And I think for us as pilots on the Sellafield site, it's the more that you fly, it builds your depth perception and you get better and better and better. But like you say, for the general public, one person could say, oh, no, yeah, it's 500 metres away, and somebody else would go, no, that's about 100 metres away. You're going to get them people tapping you on the shoulder saying, excuse me, and it's like you were saying there, he's putting the safety things in place to have a spotter, have somebody else on hand to be able to sort of by them questions of them instead of you so you don't get that concentration lapse. Fantastic, fantastic. Darren, you want to just add something to that last question? I was just thinking we just built a large screen simulator and the, we tried to make it as realistic in terms of your viewing angles. And that is a great system just for showing how small drones get when they're a distance away. So I don't know whether we could get that out on roadshows and show it to the public, but that might be one way to show them how to perceive some of the height problems that you've got there. But I also think maybe when you get down to them future systems where drones are reporting their position to some kind of central system and the public could have an app that they look at, that might be good. And also having flight evidence, you know, recording your flight logs so that if you're ever challenged, you can prove that you weren't operating at the wrong altitude. That's important too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think as technology increases, obviously, you've always got the telemetry with you in front of you. So the pilot always knows it's about educating the people around you. And I think today that's the big topic and a big takeaway is innovation, education and just where the drone industry can go. You know, it's come an awfully long way in such a short time. 
Um, so, I mean, <laughs> copters, we were always looking at the next best thing. And I think the next best thing now really is it could be anything. So it's about getting those good news stories out. It's about conversating like we're doing right now about all of these new innovative ways of staying safe, making things quicker. And it's been a process. I think that's really where industries really do take off. Thank you for tuning in this week. What are your thoughts on drone technology and the future of the perception of drones? I've enjoyed the episode, so please make sure to rate and review the show and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Our handle is at copters on all platforms, and you'll be the first to know when our next episode is live. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.